If you have your Bible, you can open it to Matthew 6, or you can follow along on the screen with me. But this is what the Bible tells us when Jesus, when you go to the source of how to pray, Jesus, this is what he taught us in Scripture. Matthew 6, verse 7 and following says this, When you pray, don't babble on and on as people of other religions do. They think their prayers are answered merely by repeating their words again and again. And he's just saying, you know, there's so much of the world, their idea of prayer is just the repetition, trying to get their God's response, get his attention to, to try to persuade him with their repetitious requests and so forth. And Jesus says in verse 8, don't be like that. Don't be like them. For your father knows exactly what you need even before you ask him. And then he instructs us, pray like this. Why don't you read it out loud with me, okay? Just read it out loud with me. Our Father in heaven, may your name be kept holy. May your kingdom come soon. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today the food we need. And forgive us our sins as we have forgiven those who sin against us. And don't let us yield to temptation, but rescue us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And this is what we refer to as the Lord's Prayer because Jesus in these verses is revealing to his disciples, then revealing to his disciples now in a very concise and memorable way why we pray as well as what we're to pray for. I mean, Jesus is brilliant. He's one of the few people on the planet in the universe that can, can address why and what and all these different things in one time. And he, he's done that in this prayer why we pray, what we're to pray for, and he teaches us that we're to pray that God's name might be kept holy. We talked about that the first week. If you look in a world that we live in, I mean, it's a profane place. I mean, God's name is used as, uh, in every way imaginable, often as a curse word. It's used and in, in profaned in literal ways like that as well as figurative ways. His reputation is profaned in our culture constantly, often by us. Jesus is instructing his followers then and now. He's saying, you know, I recognize this is a fallen world, but pray, pray. Oh, God, may your name be kept holy. And obviously, we, we lift that up on a constant basis, those of us who, who follow God. Pray that his kingdom might advance. That's a part of what he's praying about there. To instruct us to pray for. May your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. If, if our world's going to be a different place, it's not going to be just because of education or politics or medicine or any number of things, all of which have their place. It's going to change because God's kingdom is more fully realized on earth in my life and our lives in the larger culture than it is right now. It's going to have to become more like heaven here, less like what we're familiar with. Jesus says, make this a prayer request. Make this something that you constantly just bring before the throne of the Father. When you, when you see something that's contrary to what God would wish for, I mean, don't just curse that in prayer. Pray that God's will might be done. Pray for transformation, for change, for, for growth, for uh, His will to be realized more fully. He goes on in the text to, to teach us to request that our daily food and needs might be met. And this is really about not just food, but it's also, the original language, if you remember, just kind of refreshing your memory real quick, the original, it's, give us this day our daily bread. Most of the translations speak of bread. And who is, Scripture speaks of Jesus as being what? The bread of life. The Scriptures speak of how, you know, we shall not live by bread alone. We learn 
from God through Moses in Deuteronomy. Jesus quotes that. It's, it's like we live by every word that proceeds forth from the mouth of God because it was the mouth of God that spoke and things came into existence. Needs were met. Lives have been changed. Destinies altered. It's just an acknowledgement that He is our source for everything that we need. And if we seek Him on a daily basis, look at that, you know, just... Give us this day, our daily bread, it says. Give us today the food we need. It's just a constant acknowledgement that He's our source for all good things. It wants us to make that a routine part of our prayer. He wants us to make requests for forgiveness a routine part of prayer. This is part of why we pray and what we're to pray for. These are all longings, aspirations, hopes for every follower of God. And today, as we finish our three weeks on how to pray like Jesus, I want to highlight for us the three remaining longings that Jesus teaches us to regularly bring before our Heavenly Father in prayer. And my hope is that this will kind of round out what we talk about here, but my hope is that this will be something that, depending on where you are today, that this will touch your life and that you'll lean into these longings as well and pray for them on a regular basis. The fifth longing that Jesus addresses in his prayer tutorial is that we're to pray to request strength to overcome temptation. We're to pray to request strength to overcome temptation. If you look at verse 13, notice the first phrase there, don't let us yield to temptation. I want you to think with me, why do you suppose Jesus said, don't yield to temptation? You just ponder this with me for a moment. I mean, what happens when we yield at an intersection? You're coming up to an intersection, you know, one of the, one of the, one of the hundreds of roundabouts that road construction engineers today are fond of. You know, you come to the intersection, right? And you, and you sort of yield as you come up. What, what are you doing? You're pausing, right? You're slowing down, you're pausing. And, and when you and I yield, Part of what Jesus is trying to convey to us here is, is, I want you to think about this. What happens if you and I yield in front of temptation? We pause there and we get stuck there. If you read scripture, you can find other places. That, you know, we can read in Timothy where the Apostle Paul's writing, telling Timothy, a young protege of his, a, a young minister, and he says, flee! Temptation. He doesn't say yield there. It's run. Run. I mean, run for your life is what he's saying. So Jesus, even in prayer, is just acknowledging the nature of temptation. Sometimes we're drawn to a temptation. We're, we're, we're attracted to it. And he's acknowledging that that's the reality of the human condition. But he's saying if you and I are going to, if we're going to get strength to overcome, it's going to be because we don't yield there. We don't, we don't hang out there. We don't pause there. We don't flirt with it. We acknowledge in our spirit, in our mind, this is a dangerous place to be, and I want to get beyond this as fast as possible. I don't want to yield there. How do we move on? How do we, how do we flee it? Well, part of what he's trying to convey to us is we gain strength to overcome temptation through prayer is what, he, what he's trying to convey to us here. You know, Jesus practiced this if you observed his life very carefully in Scripture. 
In the wilderness, shortly after he was baptized, you know, we, we mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, Jesus was tempted by the devil himself. Okay? It wasn't an underling or a peon, a, a trainee, apprentice devil. I mean, this is the devil. What's Jesus do? I mean, Jesus spends 40 days in the wilderness doing what? Fasting, right? And praying. That's what he did. 40 days fasting and praying. We think to ourselves, in our culture, we think Jesus fasted and prayed. No wonder he was tempted. This is how we think. Because skipping a meal tempts most of us, you know, to like behave in ways and speak in ways that are unkind and so forth. We just don't understand. I mean, we don't understand the spiritual nature, the spiritual realm. We, Jesus stood the test in the face of the devil himself because he fasted and prayed. He rose above it because, because prayer does something to strengthen the soul, the spirit of a man or a woman that nothing else can do. Jesus modeled this. He taught this. On another occasion, Jesus, as we know, is about to be uh, tried and executed. It was all unjust. You know, we think we watch stuff going on in, in, in the media today of, of Supreme Court justices and stuff, and we wonder, oh, this is, this is corrupt what goes on in Washington or various places. I mean, it's how we think, right? It's nothing. I mean, it's bad, yes, but you got to understand that it's like there have been kangaroo courts around for millennia. Jesus endured one of them. I mean, one of the worst, the worst, if you want to get really technical. The Bible describes the scene and kind of, kind of what took place here, how he, how he prepared himself for this so clearly. In Matthew 26, verse 36 and following, just listen to this language and, and notice what, what he says to his disciples. Jesus went with his disciples, went with them to the olive grove called Gethsemane, which, by the way, I, in a couple of weeks, I get to be there. Okay, a couple of weeks, I'm just an aside. I'm sorry. Um, and some of us are going, going to Israel. But anyway, I'm looking forward to this. He went to the olive grove called Gethsemane, and he said, sit here while I go over there to pray. That's what he tells his disciples. He took Peter and Zebedee's two sons, James and John, and he became anguished and distressed. He told them, my soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. And he went on a little further and he bowed down with his face to the ground, praying, my father, if it is possible, let this cup of suffering be taken away from me. Yet I want your will to be done, not mine. Now let's pause right there. What, what he teaches to pray in the Lord's Prayer? May your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is heaven. May your will not my will. Do you see the linkages here? I mean, if we had a lot of time, we could just take this passage and break it, break it down in this fashion. But he goes on and he says, Then he returned to the disciples and found them asleep. Happens to me sometimes when I pray. I, I, I sympathize. Found them asleep and he said to Peter, Couldn't you watch with me even one hour? And then listen carefully. Keep watch and pray. And then he explains why. So that you will not give in. Can I give you a... You know how that words give in could be translated? Another way? So that you will not 
yield to temptation. For the spirit's willing, but the body, the flesh, is weak. On some level that we don't fully grasp, prayer strengthens our bodies. It strengthens our resolve. It strengthens our spirits, our determination. It strengthens us. And here we see the disciples, when faced with temptation, they sleep while Jesus prays. And we know how that worked out for him. The disciples fled in fear, denying they even knew him, while Jesus stood the test. I want to ask you, what temptations are you facing? What pressures, stresses are a part of your life? I recognize that with emotional exhaustion, with physical exhaustion, with stress and tension in life, the temptation is to just want to sleep. Just, I just want to take a nap. That's what I need. I just want to take a vacation. I just want, I just want to go shopping. I just want to go fill in the blank for you. Jesus appeals to us to pray. Father, don't let, don't let us yield to temptation. Help us to pray. The sixth longing that he teaches us to pray according to is we're to pray to request rescue from the evil one. And this is important, and it's not coincidental that it follows the previous one because God knows that sometimes we yield to temptation, right? Every one of us. We all give in at times. And if you yield to temptation, sometimes you find yourself trapped. Sometimes you find yourself kind of entangled by the evil one and he's got more of a grip on you and you try to shake it, but you can't. He's stronger than you. He's stronger than me. So Jesus teaches his disciples then and now to pray this way. Don't let us yield to temptation. But he says, rescue us from the evil one. The older translations say, deliver us from evil, from the evil one. And the appeal is that on some spiritual level, on some physical level, I mean, it's like we get tangled up by evil and we don't always know what's spiritual, what's physical. They're all entangled and, and, and we just need help. We're trapped. And Jesus is saying, ask for rescue. Ask for deliverance. Because the God who delivered Israel out of Egyptian bondage can deliver you. But you got to ask. It's interesting to me that the Bible tells us, it kind of paints this picture over and over. And if you look at one of the hallmarks of Jesus' ministry is this very thing. In Luke 11, verse 14 and following, the Bible tells us one of those incidents. It says that one day Jesus cast out a demon from a man who couldn't speak. He was mute. Interesting, I just made this point in my class last Wednesday night in spiritual, we're talking about spiritual warfare. Um, you know, 
we're in a generation we don't really think about demons and we don't really want to think that they're, that they're real, that they are alive, that they have power, that they can do things to you and me that we don't think. But it, it is significant that right here in the scripture says that apparently a demon can cause somebody to not be able to speak. Because that's what's going on here. And Jesus, who wasn't naive but understands reality far better than you and me, far better than any scientific you know, mind of our day, he, I mean, he, he created science, you see. I mean, he's the one who spoke it all into existence. So he understands the laws of, of the physical universe, the invisible universe, all of this. He gets, he gets it all better than we do. So what's he do with this demon? He, Jesus cast the demon out, and the guy's better, right? It goes on and says, And when the demon was gone, the man began to speak, and crowds were amazed. But some of them said in that day, just like they would in our day, no wonder he can cast out demons. He gets his power from Satan, the prince of demons, or they'd blame it on some other explanation. Others trying to test Jesus demanded that he show them a miraculous sign from heaven to prove his authority, which always makes me laugh because I just think they just watched a demon be cast out. You know, what is... And there's more going on there. But Verse 17, he knew their thoughts. That's significant. Never forget that. Jesus always knows our thoughts. And so he said, any kingdom divided... By civil war, or as the old translations say, divided against itself, is doomed. It can't stand. Family splintered by feuding will fall apart. You say, I'm empowered by Satan, but if Satan is divided and fighting against himself, how can his kingdom survive? And if I'm empowered by Satan, what about your own exorcists? Those who cast out demons among you. This is what he's speaking to his listeners there. They cast out demons too. So they'll, be, uh, they'll condemn you for what you've said. But here, I want you to listen to the rest of this real carefully. But if I'm casting out demons by the power of God, then the kingdom of God has arrived among you. For when a strong man like Satan is fully armed and guards his palace, his possessions are safe until someone even stronger attacks and overpowers him, strips him of his weapons, and carries off his belongings. What are the evil one's possessions, the belongings that he has that someone stronger wants to carry off? His people. That's what Jesus is alluding to here. He's talking about people. You and me, when we get trapped by evil. You and me and those we're close to. And here's our tendency. When we find ourselves trapped by some sort of evil, we're inclined to beat ourselves up, are we not? We find ourselves trapped. and Actually, there are two common responses, one of which is just to rage at God as though it's His fault, when the truth of the matter is I made the decisions to get where I am. Okay? Some of us make that choice. And that response requires something the Bible calls humility. It's just an acknowledgement that, like, I screwed up. God, I'm sorry. And if we choose that path, it will always lead to rescue and deliverance. It just will. The other response, though, that some of us have is that we just kind of conclude, I had it coming. I deserve it. Oh, I'm an idiot. We just go down the path of beating ourselves up. But here's the truth. Jesus never says that about you. He doesn't. 
In fact, what he tells us, what we should do when we find ourselves trapped, he says to pray. Father, help us not to yield to temptation, but rescue us. Rescue me. Deliver me from the evil one. This is what you and I have been instructed to do when we find ourselves trapped by some sort of evil, some sort of addiction, some sort of pattern of behavior or thought or belief that's inconsistent with God's will, and we know it, but we can't seem to change it. Jesus is saying, ask for help. Ask for rescue. The great irony, just as those who or inclined to rage at God, need to choose humility. Those of us who rage and anger at ourselves for our choices need to choose humility too. It's a place of humility that it wasn't just my fault. I mean, it was my fault. I chose this, yes. It's not that I have to endure this. I have to humbly look up, seek rescue. I want to ask you, what, uh, is there any sort of area in your life where you find yourself trapped? The appeal of Jesus here in the text is, in the prayer, is that if you will pray for rescue, humbling yourself before the Father, He will hear from heaven, He will forgive, and since the kingdom and the power and the glory for all of heaven and earth and all things visible and invisible are His and His alone... He has the ability and the will to rescue you if you'll seek him. Why else would Jesus instruct us to pray that way? Which brings us to the seventh reason why all believers pray. We're to pray to declare our allegiance. We're to pray to declare our allegiance. Just look at verse 13. It just sort of describes it there, the, the latter part of it, where it just it's, ends the prayer he, that he tutors us with. And it just, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. And forever is a long time. Amen. It's interesting to me, instructive even, that that part of the prayer shows up in the King James. It shows up in, in the, the footnotes of mo- several of the other translations of the Bible. And that's because in the original Greek language, in the original Greek manuscripts, and uh, we have meant, I don't know how much you know about how the Bible's compiled and everything, but there are thousands of manuscripts. And, and uh, you know, they were c- copied by humans. I mean, originally authored by prophets and apostles and so forth, but they, you know, they compile them all and they, they compare them for slight textual differences and so forth. And it's astronomical, the degree of commonality and synchronicity that is there. I mean, this, the, the precision with which the Bible has been passed down to us through the centuries. It's, it's a study unto itself, but it's truly astonishing uh, how it is. But what's fascinating about that is if you look at this last part of the the phrase, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. It's in some of the earlier, the earlier trans, uh, uh, transcripts, uh, uh, 
texts. Let me just put it that way. Uh, it's in some of the earlier texts, but some of them don't have that in there. Some of the, some of the scribes who wrote that, for whatever reason, didn't, didn't get that phrase in there. And as I thought about that, uh, as I've reflected on that over the years, I've just thought it was, it, it's instructive that that's kind of true in our world, really. Because many of us, we just kind of look and we, we are inclined to live our life. And I, I want to I follow God. I want to pray about things I want to pray about. But, but we don't want to declare our allegiance, full allegiance to God. Because our, our primary allegiance is to moi. This is how we live, right? It's to me. It's to what I want to do. It's to my family. It's to... Whatever is important to me, this is, this is how I'm orienting my life. And, and I just kept thinking about this. I thought in some ways it's like even prayer has been a little bit corrupted in this respect. And, and I'm not saying the Bible's corrupt because I'm certainly, don't misconstrue what I'm saying. I'm just acknowledging that, that this is something that our culture and we struggle with. And I do believe if you would read the rest of Scripture, you're going to find that same phraseology, yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever, shows up a whole lot of other places. So it's not like something that's contrary to Scripture. But I just want to ask you, where is your allegiance? Is it there sometimes and not others? Are you full in? Are you all in? Or are you playing sort of a spiritual game? And you're in as long as it's convenient for you. As long as it doesn't affect your job. As long as it doesn't affect what you buy or where you vacation or what entertainment you uh, take in or the pleasures that are part of your life. You know, you, as long as it doesn't affect that, you're, I'm in. See, Jesus is acknowledging even in prayer that this is not the way to live because, because the kingdom the kingdom has a king that's coming to rule over it. And his rule will be unquestioned. The scriptures are unmistakably clear. Philippians 2, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess in heaven and on earth and under the earth, which is to speak of the entirety of the physical and the spiritual and visible realms. It is just an acknowledgement that every knee is going to bow. Every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And the privilege that you and I have right now is to do it now. Is to declare our allegiance this day. So that when that day comes, it's reflexive, it's unquestioned, it's already a foregone conclusion in the heavens and on earth where your loyalty, where mine stands, where we lie. Jesus is just saying prayer is not just about asking for these things. It's also about declaring our allegiance and acknowledging that, that God's, the kingdom is all his. The glory is all his. And it's interesting because scripture is really clear. God says, I will not share my glory with another. It's his glory. I don't get part of it. You don't get part of it. It's His, His alone. And the power, it's His. 
All of it. There are instances when he shares it through us. In fact, you could make a pretty strong argument that that the power of God almost always flows through the context of prayer. This is the way he set it up. If you want to share in that power, it's not going to be yours. It will be, it will be an appeal to the good and gracious and glorious and all-powerful God of heaven to intervene on your behalf in one of these ways. And, and because he's good because he cares and because it's his kingdom and because it's his glory and his power and because you're his child and he knows your allegiance. Jesus' point is, is that he'll hear from heaven and respond. This whole declaring allegiance, um, I guess maybe just in my spirit, I'm just particularly sensitive to it because I just, I, I look, I mean, we... We live in a day when people don't want to declare their allegiance to our flag. They don't want to declare allegiance to justice. They don't. I mean, we are we we are rapidly becoming a nation, and this is not everybody. I recognize that, and you do too. You watch it in the media, and you've got, in the big scope of things, handfuls of people being paraded before us as rebels by our media trying to inflame us. But what you have to understand is this stuff metastasizes. It's like cancer. And some people who have no foundational biblical moorings, they see these things and they think, oh, well, this is how I'm supposed to behave. This is how I get ahead. Because they don't, because they don't have roots of a spiritual nature, they get sucked into it and deceived by peer pressure to think that this is the way things, this is how I get ahead in the world and they start compromising and you know this is the way the slope happens you see you know that this is the time for you and me to declare our allegiance to God first because in 70 years from now your allegiance to the American flag won't matter Maybe 80 years for some of us. But it ain't going to matter. But your allegiance to this God in this book, that will matter. And Jesus is just appealing to us to leave behind the division that began with the forbidden fruit in the Garden of Eden. He's appealing to us to humble ourselves, to give up our rebellion, our contrary spirit, to declare our Loyalty and allegiance unwaveringly and uncompromisingly to the holy and righteous and loving and pure God of the heavens and the earth who took upon himself flesh that he might die in our place, who's one day going to return and rule and reign. And he's just saying, bow your knee now. Bow your knee now. Well, there's the opportunity to do it by your choice. Because the day is coming when knees will be cut out from underneath people who are unwilling to humble themselves before the glorious and righteous God of the heavens and the earth. Today's our choice, your choice. It's interesting to me as I was reflecting on all this, I just thought, you know, baptism, 
We're going to have a baptism today after the service, and maybe some of you ought to hang around and participate or at least see what it looks like and decide to participate in a, a, a near a upcoming week. But baptism is, is a picture, it's a declaration of allegiance is, is part of what it is. It's not all of what it is, but it is, it is that. It's, it's a pledge with your body to say, I'm dying to self, I'm going to live for God, I'm giving back to God the body, soul, and spirit that he gave me. I'm surrendering. Here I am, God. When you go under the water, you're dying to the old self, the old man or woman. When you come up out of the water, it's a, it's a declaration, according to Scripture, that just as Jesus died and went in the grave and came up out of the grave alive, you're identifying yourself with the promise that just as Jesus lives, the day will come when you will, even if your body dies, the real you won't. You will live forever. It's the picture of baptism. It's a declaration of allegiance. Have you made that declaration with your one and only body? It's interesting, you know, Scripture, uh, some of you say, oh, I was baptized as a, as a baby. Thank you, Mom and Dad. And I would say, well, that, yay for Mom and Dad, because they wanted to raise you in a way that honors God. Do you realize there is no example in Scripture of a baby being baptized? You know why? It's not because it's wrong. The reason it's not there is because every baptism in Scripture was a personal declaration of allegiance to the one and only God who rules and reigns over all the heavens and the earth, who's King of kings and Lord of lords. It was a personal choice. It was a personal statement that I am dying to myself. Mom and Dad can't decide that for you. That's why that's not the picture in Scripture. I mean, the picture of Scripture is you choosing. Have you chosen, have you decided that I will give my life to Jesus because he gave his life for me? Well, just as baptism is that picture, you have to understand that prayer is that declaration of allegiance. And every time we pray, it's a reminder. It's a reminder, Jesus is saying. It's one of those things that the kingdom is his, the power is his, the glory is his, and how long will it be his? Forever. 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 Life is short. Jesus is returning soon. Don't delay declaring your allegiance. You can do it today in prayer. You can do it in baptism. You can do it through obedience as well. But we're called to that. Before we wrap up, I want to close <clears throat> with this thought. You know, the ancient temple in Israel uh, was a spectacular place. It was a glorious place. I mean, people came from all over the world three times a year to, uh, to pray there, to worship there, to, uh, to seek God there to feast there. I mean, they'd bring their sacrifices and, you know, it, it, and some, we don't in our day, I mean, you know, some of us are animal rights-ish and so we don't like the idea of sacrifice and so forth. And I get that. I understand that. I have a, I have a yellow lab. It would make me sick if the, the thought of 
something happening to him, a sacrifice or something. You just, you just think that would be wrong and, and it would hurt, be horrible. But you have to understand, though, in that time and even in our day, I, I, don't, I don't have an emotional negative reaction when I go to Jack Stack Barbecue. <laughs> I have a reaction emotionally, it's just not a negative one. You know what I'm saying? Uh, and people in ancient times didn't have a negative one when we went to, to the temple for sacrifice either. I mean, for the most part, it was a joyous occasion because, you know, there was the sacrifice and the meat was then shared among the family and shared among the priests. And it was, it was, it was a whole lot more like jack stack than how we think of it. Um, why, why do I even mention that? My point is to say that it was a place of joy, but what you have to understand too, Scripture, Jesus uh, makes it clear, the entirety of Scripture makes it clear that it was a house of prayer. That was what God... In fact, Jesus, a couple times when he got really irate with the Pharisees and with the people of his day was because it was, they were corrupting it from being a house of prayer to being a house of you know, where they're buying and selling stuff in, in corrupt ways. They're cheating people out of money and all kinds of stuff. And it just it offended him, and he kind of you know, started cleaning house before the real time to clean house that will happen in the near future one of these days. And... Um, it was a house of prayer. Well, the temple was destroyed in 70 A.D., you know that. Are you familiar with where God's current temple is and what Scripture says about that? God's current temple, according to Scripture, is in you and in me. And he still wants it to be a house of prayer. And he wants us, some of us, to, he sees stuff that goes on in here. And he wants us to clean house and to make this a temple where he can dwell and where the center of our lives is prayer. That's how Jesus lived his life. And it's his calling to every one of us who chooses to be his disciple back then or today. If we listen to what he says, that can happen. I'm going to invite you to stand with me. We're going to close in prayer this morning. Glad that you made it this morning. If you've never seen a baptism, I want to invite you to hang around and uh, uh, watch this. Um, maybe you've seen one or maybe you just, you know, in your heart of hearts, you just felt like the Holy Spirit was kind of convicting you this morning. You need to, you need to declare your allegiance in this way and you've never done it. Uh, come let me know afterwards, and we'll work out a time when you can. But uh, hope you'll hang around for that, and I hope that you'll just make prayer a continuous, just a without ceasing part of your life. You were made for that, you and I were. Next week, we're going to talk about, you know, when prayer goes unanswered, we're going to talk about that, and uh, then we'll have another week after that, too, but uh, then we'll wrap up the series. But glad you made it this morning. Let's pray if you have needs for prayer specifically about something, come on down. We'll pray about that too, okay? Let's pray. Then we'll be dismissed. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are good and gracious, that yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. We're grateful for that. It gives us hope in a world that uh, is kind of wacky sometimes, even in us, because we're wacky sometimes. We make choices that we don't always know. Why did I do that? And what was I thinking? And 
And we are uh, fallen, broken people in a fallen, broken world. We thank you that you're good, that you're holy, that you're righteous, that you call us to a life that lasts forever. And you make new life possible through your sacrifice, Lord Jesus. We praise you and honor you and thank you for that now and will for all eternity. But we ask, Lord, that you'd help us to make our bodies, our soul and spirit, a, a house of prayer for you. Help us to clean up things internally with the help of your spirit and the cleansing of your, sh your son's shed blood. Help us to make choices that clean up our lives as well on a personal level. But then, Lord, just help us to keep in mind these seven longings, these seven hopes and aspirations of all believers that remind us why we pray and how to do it and what we're to pray about. May it just become reflexive. May it become something that we do without ceasing day in and day out, all the days of our lives, that we might know what it means to walk in the power of your spirit, what it means to walk in fellowship and communion with you day in and day out. Lord, as we wrap up now this morning, would you go with us? Would you empower us? Would you guide our steps? Help us to, to hear your voice, to follow your leading. We'll give you credit for every good thing that happens. And this is our prayer, and we lift it together in the name of Jesus. And everybody agreed with me and said, Amen. 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 Bless you all.